Welcome to 7 Questions About Death. I'm Beth Jansen. Most people are pretty uncomfortable talking about death. I hope this program can help to change that and make death a more natural topic of conversation. On today's program, I'm speaking with Jeremy. He lives in Edmonton. I just woke up in the middle of the night and I felt that she came to me and it's just sort of this light above me and I could I could just feel her presence. Question 1. What do you believe happens to a person's consciousness or spirit after the body dies? That's a big question. Essentially, I do believe there is a spirit. I believe it leaves the body eventually. There's a process involved that's more complicated than I understand. Being part of a Tibetan Buddhist temple, I mean, they have a whole layers of information around what happens. And I happen to think that there is a process. So sometimes the spirit will stay with the body for some amount of time. Sometimes it needs a little bit of help to be released from the body. Sometimes it's not so straightforward. The soul just leaving out of the body. And I think a, a lot of that depends on how well someone's prepared for death. There's a whole process of getting ready for death. And if it happens suddenly, that can affect the process too, because the person's obviously not ready at that point. And I also think that, you know, spirits from the other side and God, I do believe in God. I mean, that's another whole huge concept, but I, I'll use that word, would be helping someone in that process as well. I don't think they do it alone. So that's a little bit about what I think happens. So what I'm hearing is it's not the same for everybody. Yeah, definitely. I'm interested in the Tibetan Buddhist ideas about what happens to the soul after death, but I'm getting from you that they're quite complex. Yeah, they're quite complex, and a lot of my learnings at the temple have focused on the bardo concept. Could you talk a little bit yeah, about that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And the bardo being a place that spirits go, a transition place, and they talk about timelines... The idea is that a person has 49 days in the bardo. They may not need all of it. Basically what the bardo is, is a place where a whole bunch of spirits who've passed, so it could be animals as well as humans, all sorts of spirits are in competition with one another. In competition? Uh, yeah, they're actually in competition to get the optimal rebirth for themselves. You know, the image comes up to my mind of sperm. They compete for an egg. It's kind of a similar idea. Wow. These spirits are competing. And it's not that every spirit could have every option of rebirth, but there's limited options. And so ones that may be appropriate for a particular rebirth are competing with each other. You know, I think it's some sort of combination of this is somewhat meant to be this spirit got this rebirth and also the effort they put in to make that happen matters so like this is one of the things with tibetan buddhism of death dying rebirth there's a combination of some amount of predestined determination and that predestined determination is based on karma so what karma you've already accumulated, as well as the actual circumstances that are happening at the moment. So both things are important. 
So if a spirit doesn't find a rebirth within that 49 days, then the idea is that they're forced into one. You just don't have a choice at that point and you just sort of assign something and you're reborn as something. Could be a human, could be an animal. It would be probably appropriate, but I think the idea is that if a spirit can get one willingly that they chose, they'd probably get a better option than whatever they're assigned to. It's so specific. It's specific, and I bring it up just because we're talking about Tibetan Buddhism, and that's a huge piece of where I draw my understanding. And that information does come from teachings from the Book of the Dead, but it also doesn't mean that I 100% that's what I believe. I can believe there's something to that, and if I were to guess, I think there probably is Bardo, there probably is something like that happening. Um, but the other concept is that, you know, level of karma determines your level of options, right? In my experience, I've, I've talked to a lot of people who've had near-death experiences, and none of them have described an experience like that. All of them describe something that was more like a heavenly experience, floating up, being with their loved ones, being able to look down on the earth, or have some broader expansive view, and then make a choice about whether they wanted to come back or what they wanted to do from that point and then choosing to come back. Then again, in that instance, talking about people who didn't completely die, I think the difference is, in my opinion, karma level. I think if someone's really poor karma, the Bardo's probably, I don't know, to me it seems akin to purgatory. Mm -hmm. That's what it seems like to me, a similar representation mm -hmm. of a space in the universe. So you have a few different religious traditions informing your belief systems. Yes. Well, I've always been super fascinated in people with near-death experiences, and I've been very fortunate enough to have a few people relay some really, really powerful experiences, and that's definitely influenced my view. Mm, thanks for sharing that. Question two. Have you ever been present when somebody's life has ended? I've been close. I've been around people around the time that they're passing. I'm trying to think. No, I don't think I've actually been present physically while somebody else was dying. But close to the time. But close to the time. And then, of course, afterwards as well. And Would you want to be? Honestly, I think that that is something that if it's going to happen, it, it's like meant to be. If I'm meant to be there, I'll be there one day while someone's passing and I'll be part of that with them. So whether I would want to or not is less important of a question to me. But certainly you don't have an aversion to it. I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with death. Yeah, I'm okay with it, and uh, partly because I, you know, of the experiences I've had, and, and that's a big part, is these experiences that people have told me about that are just so beautiful, that it's definitely really changed my view. I could really understand that. Question three. Have you ever experienced communication from someone who is no longer alive in the physical world? Or have you wondered if you were receiving communication from someone who is no longer alive in the physical world? Yeah, uh, even my mom talking to me about stories when I was a kid about 
seeing deceased relatives coming and visiting around the time that they passed away and communicating with them. So for my mom telling me about those things when I was a little kid, that presupposed any experiences I had, but I'm trying to think the first time. I was in like grade, hmm, I want to say like grade five, and a um, classmate of mine passed away from cancer. And I was laying in bed uh, one night, and I just woke up in the middle of the night, and I felt that she came to me, and it was just sort of this light above me, and I could, I could just feel her presence. And very basic message that she was communicating to me was that I had a really important purpose. That's what she was trying to tell me. There was something important. There wasn't any specifics about it. And uh, also just a message around that she's doing okay now and heaven's a wonderful place kind of thing. Although it's not like it came in words. It was just more, I felt her presence and then it was just a sense that that's what she was communicating to me. Wow. A little bit of an image of her her face and like kind of an image, a very light image of sort of like her in heaven kind of came to my mind's eye. And yeah, that was that experience. That's the first time I can ever remember having a contact with someone who's passed. Wow, that would, must have been really powerful for you. Yeah, it was. And I think I cried <laughs> in grade five. This is I was sad. I, you know, to be honest, I didn't know her that well, but she was a wonderful human being. And, and, and I did know her. Mm-hmm. It, it was special. Wow. Question four. Who do you want to be with you when you die? And what circumstances would you choose if you could choose them? Who would I want to be with me when I die? Uh, well, my wife. My wife, obviously. Um, I, I would want, like, my parents, but I would much prefer that they passed away in a natural time before me. It would be good to have my brother and his family. It would be good to have other family members or friends. But, but my wife is definitely number one. So die at home, die outside... Do you have any other sort of ideas? Preference? Yeah. Uh, dying at home could be good. Uh, honestly, it, it's not so much about the location, but the process itself. I mean, if I could choose, I'd probably prefer to die relatively painlessly, but have the opportunity to tell everyone that I love them and that sort of thing first. Um, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You know, like I think most people would probably want something like that, but maybe other people have other ideas. Yeah, I think people do have a wide range of ideas, actually. Question five How do you feel about the fact that you will die? Are you afraid of your own death? Physically, I mean, I think there is a fear of being harmed or if a car was driving really quickly and I was crossing the street, I would be afraid. But, you know, from a calm mind state sitting here talking about it, no, it doesn't bother me. You sound like you have quite a level of acceptance around it. Yeah, I do. I do. Question six.
Are there any traditions or practices connected with death which you find meaningful? Well, actually, this one, reading uh, one Buddhist text, and there was one of the masters there who made a comment that his master told him that I will die and you will die. That is all you need to know. And uh, that's what my master taught me. And that's what I teach you. And uh, that's something I, you know, I've taken to heart, particularly more lately, is just thinking about that. It changes everything. Like your perspective on what's going to happen when you die or even how you live based on the fact that you know that everything is impermanent Mm. and I can't take any of it with me, you know, and that goes into everything, you know, memories, sentimentality is a big one. That's really affected my sense of sentimentality because it's all going. Nothing lasts. What's sentimentality going to do? Holding on to what? To go back to what? Like you can't go backwards. You're listening to CJSR, 88.5 FM, in Edmonton. You're listening to 7 Questions About Death. I'm Beth Jansen. If you'd like to be interviewed, or if you have a comment about the show, please get in touch. My email is sevenquestionsaboutdeath at gmail.com. The seven is the number seven. Question seven. If you could ask a source of all knowledge some question about death, what would it be? I guess the question I would more want to ask is... uh, and, and it's not something I think could be answered in words. It's something that has to be experienced is what is the best that I can do to have the best circumstances? You know, what, what's the best that I can do so that when I die and I look back, I will be most pleased, you know, that, okay, I did well with the time that I had. And I don't know that that's something you can answer in a sentence or in words. I think it's something that has to be lived. And if anyone could help me with that, they would help me with it by being part of my life, right? And, and by experiencing life with me and maybe teaching me things along the way. But I don't think you could just tell someone the answer to that. we just listened to is called Life After Death by Ian Hunter. It was originally released in 1979. I'm reading a book at the moment called Life After Life by Raymond A. Moody. It was first published in 1975, and it's the book that was responsible for bringing the phenomenon of near-death experiences and all the common elements that we're familiar with now to the public eye. Near the end of the book, Dr. Moody draws parallels between common near-death experience elements and the Tibetan Book of the Dead. 
I'm going to read from the Tibetan Book of the Dead. After that, I will read some excerpts from the book, Life After Life, in which he comments on parallels. The Bardo of the Moments of Death The first, the setting face to face with the clear light during the intermediate state of the moments of death is here some there may be who have listened much to religious instructions yet not recognized and some who though recognizing are nevertheless weak in familiarity but all classes of individuals who have received the practical teachings called guides will if this be applied to them, be set face to face with the fundamental clear light, and without any intermediate state, they will obtain the unborn Dharmakaya by the great perpendicular path. The manner of application is, it is best if the guru from whom the deceased received guiding instructions can be had. But if the guru cannot be obtained, then a brother of the faith, or if the latter is also unobtainable, then a learned man of the same faith, or should all these be unobtainable, then a person who can read correctly and distinctly ought to read this many times over. Thereby, the deceased will be put in mind of what he had previously heard of the setting face to face and will at once come to recognize that fundamental light and undoubtedly obtain liberation. As regards the time for the application of these instructions, when the expiration bath ceased, the vital force will have sunk into the nerve center of wisdom and the knower will be experiencing the clear light of the natural condition. Then, the vital force being thrown backwards and flying downwards through the right and left nerves, the intermediate state momentarily dawns. The above directions should be applied before the vital force bath rushed into the left nerve after first having traversed the navel nerve center. The time, ordinarily necessary for this motion of the vital force, is as long as the inspiration is still present or about the time required for eating a meal. Then the manner of the application of the instructions is, when the breathing is about to cease, it is best if the transference hath been applied efficiently. If the application hath been inefficient, then address the deceased thus. O nobly born, so and so by name, the time hath now come for thee to seek the path in reality. Thy breathing is about to cease. Thy guru hath set thee face to face before with the clear light, and now thou art about to experience it in its reality in the bardo state, wherein all things are like the void and cloudless sky, and the naked, spotless intellect 
is like unto a transparent vacuum without circumference of center. At this moment, know thou thyself, and abide in that state. I, too, at this time, am setting thee face to face. Having read this, repeat it many times in the ear of the person dying, even before the expiration hath ceased, so as to impress it on the mind of the dying one. If the expiration is about to cease, turn the dying one over on the right side, which posture is called the lying posture of a lying. At this moment, the first glimpsing of the bardo of the clear light of reality, which is the infallible mind of the Dharmakaya, is experienced by all sentient beings. The interval between the cessation of the expiration and the cessation of the inspiration is the time during which the vital force remaineth in the median nerve. The common people call this the state wherein the consciousness principle hath fainted away. The duration of this state is uncertain. It dependeth upon the constitution, good or bad, and the state of the nerves and the vital force. In those who have had even a little practical experience of the firm, tranquil state of dhyana, and in those who have sound nerves, this state continueth for a long time. The manner of applying these directions is, if when dying, one be by one's own self capable of diagnosing the symptoms of death, use of the knowledge should have been made ere this. If the dying person be unable to do so, then either the guru or a shishya or a brother in the faith with whom the one dying was very intimate should be kept at hand. from Raymond Moody's Life After Life, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. This remarkable work was compiled from the teachings of sages over many centuries in prehistoric Tibet and passed down through these early generations by word of mouth. It was finally written down, apparently, in the 8th century AD, but even then was hidden to keep it secret from outsiders. The form which this unusual book takes is shaped by the many interrelated uses to which it was put. First of all, the wise men who wrote it regarded dying as, in effect, a skill, something which could be done either artfully or in an unbecoming manner, depending upon whether one had the requisite knowledge to do it well. So, the book was read as part of the funeral ceremony or to the dying person during the closing moments of his life. It thus was thought to serve two functions. The first was to help the dying person keep in mind the nature of each new wondrous phenomenon as he experienced it. The second was to help those still living think positive thoughts and not hold the dying one back with their love and emotional concern, so that he could enter into the after-death planes in a proper frame of mind, released from all bodily concerns. To effect these ends, the book contains a lengthy description of the various stages through which the soul goes after physical death. 
the correspondence between the early stages of death which it relates, and those which have been recounted to me by those who have come near to death is nothing short of fantastic. First of all, in the Tibetan account, the mind or soul of the dying person departs from the body. At some time thereafter, his soul enters a swoon and he finds himself in a void, not a physical void, but one which is, in effect, subject to its own kind of limits and one in which his consciousness still exists. He is surprised to find himself out of his physical body. He sees and hears his relatives and friends mourning over his body and preparing it for the funeral. And yet when he tries to respond to them, they neither hear nor see him. Again, that's an excerpt from Raymond Moody's Life After Life the 1975 book which brought the phenomenon of near-death experiences to the public eye. I would like to thank today's guest, Jeremy. Jeremy lives in Edmonton. Thanks for listening. You're listening to CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton. You've been listening to Seven Questions About Death. I'm Beth Jansen. If you're interested in being interviewed, or if you have a comment or a question, please get in touch. My email is sevenquestionsaboutdeath at gmail.com. The seven is a number seven. Thanks for listening. <laughs>